This evening, we hope to draw evangelistic encouragement from uh, the whole message, uh, or the message, rather, of the whole book of Jonah, but I'll be reading just a selection from chapter 3 and then a few verses from chapter 4 as well. We're picking up this familiar story at chapter 3, verse 1, after Jonah has uh, disobeyed the plain call of God to go and speak a message of warning to a city in Assyria called Nineveh. Jonah said went the wrong way, was apprehended by God and brought back to the place where uh, he should set out again to minister to this people. And so we jump into the book at the second call of God's prophet Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry. There's further exchange in the next verses of, between God and the Lord where Jonah uh, expresses his um, troubled soul and his lack of evangelistic interest in the people before God closes with this question, <clears throat> which we'll hope to see was for Jonah but also for us. Verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. What can we learn from arguably the world's worst missionary? Jonah is a poor missionary, as the book makes plain. He stubbornly resisted God's call. He was selfish with God's grace. 
He hated the people he was called to minister to. He refused to disciple the new converts that God made. In fact, he hoped that God would change his mind, revoke his mercy, and unleash his judgment. When God stood firm in his mercy, this missionary became suicidal. Terrible missionary. And, and I suppose we could draw some encouragement from that. No matter our struggles in evangelistic zeal, I'm sure we're not as bad as Jonah. But in fact, the book is not setting a low standard for evangelistic energy. The book isn't suggesting that as long as we're somewhat better than the world's worst missionary, we're okay. In fact, the book is a radical call to share with others the grace that God has shared with us. I hope that two questions will help guide us through this book and, and, and help us to grow in our uh, commitment to the call that God has given to us to be salt and light to the nations. The first is uh, a question that can help us better understand the purpose of the book. Um, the question is, what is the book of Jonah all about? And then the second question, more applicatory, is what can Jonah teach us about um, evangelism. So first of all, what is Jonah all about? What is the book of Jonah? We can first of all answer that question by insisting with uh, the uh, faithful church of all ages that the book isn't a parable. It isn't a fable. um, It isn't um, a made-up story. It is historical narrative. And we could give lots of reasons to defend that claim, but Uh, In summary, the book gives no indication of its being fictitious, as certain apocryphal books clearly do, for example. It's also, uh, the book of Jonah is also missing marks of being a parable. So you read uh, a parable, say that Jesus told a story, a a made-up story to impart a spiritual meaning, and, and it's very generic. So Jesus would say, for example, there was a certain man who had two sons. And you, you hear no specific details, no names. You, it's clear to you that that's a parable, and that's a, uh, and, and, and a very useful genre. But this book isn't like that. It starts out in a very specific way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and, and then goes on to list specific places and um, historical uh, situations. And so it's not, it's not a, 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 a parable or a fable for those reasons. But most importantly, we could say that Jesus himself handled the book of Jonah as a true story. In fact, he does more than, in, in his handling of it, he, he actually uses the book of Jonah as uh, as an as a, uh, argument for his own death and resurrection. And so he's grounding his historical death and resurrection in the historical um, uh, situation of Jonah, particularly in the, in the belly of the great fish. Some commentators suggest that perhaps Jonah died in the whale and was in fact resurrected. But whether that's true or not, there's certainly a, a figurative death and resurrection in real life that Jesus is um, helping the, using to help the people understand his pending death and resurrection. So the book is, is what one writer called didactic history, teaching story, um, story making a point. Um, 
the, the story we're, we're perhaps familiar with, it's really the, the gist of it is a, a disobedient prophet fleeing a very clear call of God to do something very specific. God um, hounding after him, as one writer put it, um, grabbing a hold of his prophet, bringing him back, fighting God's uh, call on his life, going grudgingly to speak a message, hoping the people wouldn't believe the message, and waiting even after God um, seemed to be accepting the repentance in case God would change his mind and send fire from heaven and consume them. Jonah was concerned about himself. He was concerned about his comfort. He had pity, strangely, on this plant that God had raised up to give him shade from the desert sun when it died, and he didn't pity the Ninevites. And so we have that, that, that story, which, as you may have noticed, and we'll deal with a little bit more later, um, it ends on a, a question. That's unusual, isn't it? To end what kind of writing ends with a question mark. But it's a question mark meant for Jonah to answer. And in, uh, through, through his writing, that we also might answer, that we would appreciate God's pity toward the lost and more than appreciate it that we would imitate it. So what's the story's point? If that's the gist of the story and if Jonah is didactic history, history teaching a point, what is the point? And I'm going to suggest two primary points that the book of Jonah is making. First of all, Jonah calls God's people to be a light to the nations. In other words, Jonah is a sort of missionary manual. Not, of course, in the same way that the book of Acts is a missionary manual. That's clear and obvious. Um, With few exceptions, uh, the people, the main characters in the book of Acts are on mission. They're doing what God called them to do. And so we can read the book of Acts and say, well, this is something like how the mission of the church ought to continue in our day as well. Jonah, of course, isn't like that. He essentially does almost everything wrong. And yet what we see is the book functioning as a missionary manual in terms of how it rebukes Jonah's unfaithfulness. Keep in mind that what we're reading here, part of what we read this evening, was at some point after the events occurred, was written down in the Hebrew language and was used for teaching in Israel. And as such, it doesn't reflect well on Jonah. And because Jonah is speaking for Israel, is a public figure, a public person, a prophet, it also doesn't reflect well on the nation of Israel. And so this book, first of all, I believe is an expose of Israel's missionary disobedience. Israel was meant to be a guiding light in a dark world. And, uh, of course, the Lord and his providence did use the nation in that way. And yet, covenantal presumption on the part of Israel uh, often got in the way of the nation being a light to others. Covenantal presumption in the sense that the the Israelites were 
uh, fond of saying, we have the covenant, we have the word of God, we have the promises, we have the temple, we have all of this, and we'll, we'll be content to keep it to ourselves. And we're not interested in others knowing about the grace of God, particularly the Assyrians, who were a growing uh, godless world power in, in this day. And so um, Jonah, the, the book, sort of previews Jesus' New Testament parable of the prodigal son, which, as you remember, when the Jews heard that parable, it didn't reflect well on them either. Gentiles are that lost son who forfeited all rights to sonship. That's what the Assyrians were. Gentiles who had forfeited all rights to sonship. The father through Jonah, intends to welcome them back into his family. But like the older brother in Jesus' parable, Israel, through Jonah, exemplified by Jonah, failed to share God's welcoming heart. Jonah's book was meant to touch a a nerve in the hearts of the Israelites, to enlarge their sympathies toward the lost and to lead the chosen people of God to undertake the great missionary task of proclaiming the truth to the heathen world. But it does so, as, as you know from the reading of it, in a negative way, at least by pointing out the failures of Jonah. He doesn't come out of the, of, of the book looking good. He's not on task. He's not on mission. He, he, and nobody could mistake him for being on mission. In other words, the Israelites ought to have read this book and said, we've got to do better than this. And we should read the book in a, in a similar way. So that, that's one thing I think the book of, of Jonah is doing. It's, it's exposing the evangelistic failures of the Israelites. Positively, Jonah sets up Jesus as the ultimate missionary. It's true, of course, that the Israelites should have received this book and, say, and said, we've got to do better than that. But the, the, the better than that is ultimately Jesus. It's ultimately Jesus. Jesus is a sign of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is, uh, Matthew records Jesus being asked for a sign by the critics. Jesus, show us something that will prove to us that you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and and came out. Um, Jesus says in that passage that, uh, the, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment, the day of judgment, against this present generation because they heard the word of God and were converted. And Jesus says, a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the greater Jonah. That's what the book is doing. Just like the whole Old Testament is about Jesus, this book is about Jesus. J- J- Jonah is the sort of the literary foil of the, the Son of God who was sent with a desire to save. Jonah had no desire, no interest, but God would send a greater prophet who would willingly uh, seek and save that which was lost. We have Jesus spoken of uh, in advance by Isaiah 
saying, here I am when called to minister. I'm here. I want to do your will. And, 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 and for the children that you've given to me, Jonah's failures point to Jesus Christ. To put it differently, the Ninevites were a first installment of the Gentiles' conversion to come. The Ninevite revival anticipates Pentecost. The first revival affected by the fleshly gift of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, as the book of Revelation puts it, chapter 5, 11, and 12, because of Jesus, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands of redeemed people will sing of the matchless worth of the Lamb who was slain, the Ninevites among them. Because of Jesus, not because of Jonah. And so Jonah, even through his stubborn disobedience, reveals the loving heart of God toward lost people. In fact, this wonderful question that we have at the end of the book, should I not pity Nineveh, pity that people who, who, don't, who don't know their right hand from their left, and even their cattle, shouldn't I be that pitiful, that merciful? That question comes up because of the um, lack of compassion of Jonah. So, so, so even Jonah's failures reveals the loving heart of God toward the lost. And so like all biblical narratives, in this one it's obvious, but in all, like in all biblical narratives, Jonah isn't the hero of the story. He's not really the main character of the story. The book could have, the book could have been called God's kindness toward Nineveh or, or something like that. That's what the book is all about. The book helps tell the story of God's heroic mission work in a broken world. So, so, so that's what the story is all about. It reveals the failures of Jonah and Israel in being light to the nation and reveals a greater than Jonah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second question. How can Jonah make us better missionaries? How can we come away from this story, which is familiar to us, uh, being better prepared to care for the, the lost in our day, those who do not know their right from their left hand in our day? Let's answer that question in, in three ways. Many more uh, applications could be drawn. But in order to be better missionaries, th- uh, the book of Jonah teaches us that we must know God's grace. We must know God's grace. Without, of course, pretending to have the ability to look into Jonah's soul and uh, comment on whether he was a regenerated man when he was writing this book or when the events about which he's writing were taking place, um, we can draw some insights. We can say that Jonah... Uh, talked about being a believer, right? He, he uh, says in Jonah 1 verse 9, I fear the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. That's Old Testament language for faith. He affirmed in chapter 4 verse 2 that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And so someone might say, well, that's a confession of faith, right? Perhaps. Or perhaps Jonah is simply able to quote Exodus 34, 6, which is really what he's doing here. He's quoting this passage about God being merciful and compassionate. He knows that's true, but you know that when he's saying it, 
He's saying it with spit coming out of his mouth. He's not happy about it. He doesn't love God's compassion. He certainly doesn't love that God's compassion was shown toward unworthy Ninevites. Jonah's story gives scant, if any, evidence of an experience of grace. He could talk about grace. He could string texts together, which he does in his prayer. It's really a beautiful prayer, which we didn't read, uh, which is chapter 2. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a very psalm-ish prayer because it's almost entirely drawn from various Old Testament psalms. So Jonah didn't, didn't really, uh, he's, he's, not, he did, he's not the really original author of this. He's simply strung together different texts. And so it's beautiful in that, in that sense. And yet, in a certain sense, the way he strings this, the, the psalm verses together and in the context, his psalm is very unsalm like and here's what, what I mean by that. One expert uh, in the book of Jonah points out that in Psalms, when sin is recognized as the cause of the writer's duress, the writer makes that element primary and seeks deliverance from sin before anything else. You understand? So, for example, he references Psalm 32, verse 5. This is... A psalm of David in which he has he's experienced tremendous duress. God's hand heavy upon him as God's hand was heavy upon Jonah. And yet David in Psalm 32 verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you. Jonah never does that. He never acknowledges that, he, that he's in experiencing duress because of his sin. In fact, the prayer, although you know, made up of, of psalm verses, actually makes Jonah come out of the whole experience looking pretty good. He blames God, in fact, in verse 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, the floods surrounded me. You did that. But now, verse 7, when my life was fainting away because you did that to me... I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you. It goes on to say, um, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. It comes out looking pretty good through this prayer. But there's no penitence. So again, my point is not to, to pretend to be able to look into Jonah's soul at this time, but simply to say that at this time, it seems that Jonah would not have loved John 3.16. He would not have loved, He did not love the idea of the breadth of God's mercy. God's love for the world displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. We know that to be true. Chapter four, verse one. And so, so faithful missionaries are not, are aware of their sin are attempting to bring to others nothing different than what they have experienced themselves. What we're really doing when we, when we bring the gospel message is saying, I acknowledged my sin and my iniquities when God's hand was heavy upon me and I cried out to the Lord and he, and he, and he was pitiful toward me. He didn't honor my righteousness because I had none, he honored his name and his covenant promise. 
And so, so, so friend, come along with me. And let's experience the mercy of God together. And so we need to have that testimony of God's grace, that God has been gracious to me. Jonah gives the, a, a different impression that he's above the Ninevites, that God didn't have to be gracious to him because after all, he's, he's an Israelite, he's Jonah, he's a professional prophet. Faithful missionaries know that they need God's grace. They love God's grace. They invite others to be justified, as Paul writes in Romans 3.24, by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24. So we must know God's grace if we will be faithful missionaries. Second, we must obey God's call to be missionaries. As a professional prophet, which is what Jonah was, that was his vocation, that was his calling, his, his calling was actually quite simple. I don't mean easy. It would have been difficult to go to Assyria, to swallow his pride, to minister to people who hated him. It would be like, in the context, it would be like ministering to, to the people who orchestrated 9-11 attacks against one's country. Assyria was terrorizing Israel at the time. So this was a hard calling, but it was simple. It was clear. God says, Jonah, just say the words that I'll put into your mouth. He says that in uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Just, just go. Just go to, go to Nineveh. Say the words that I put into your mouth. And from the sound of it, it wasn't even that many words. Now, Jonah may have said more than what's recorded in the book, but it's a very simple message. The, the emphasis here is on obedience to the missionary mandate. And this is always true of prophets in the Bible. Jeremiah, you may remember, he objected to God calling him as a missionary. He says, God, I'm just a child. I can't do this. I can't speak well. I'm not mature. I'm not bold. I'm not whatever. And God says, don't say that. Don't call yourself a child. I'll put the words in your mouth. I'll put the words in your mouth. You just go and speak them. And, and that is actually the reality for all of us. We are not professional prophets. We have other vocations. Thank God that we have other vocations by which we use our gift for the upbuilding of the church and society. We are not all professional prophets, but we are prophets. One uh, 16th century Reformed catechism reminds us that we share in Christ's anointing as prophets and must confess his name. We share. So Jesus was anointed to, to, to bring good news to the nations. And he did. But we share in his anointed. We've been baptized by the Holy Spirit to be prophets as well as priests and kings. It's interesting that the commission of Jonah doesn't sound that different from the great commission that we've received in Matthew chapter 28. They both begin with the word go. go. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. God told to Jonah, go to Assyria, make disciples of them. Right? Speak this word of warning. And obviously by implication, if they heed the warning, if they uh, put their trust in me, disciple them. Teach them how to follow the Lord. 
And for Jonah's failure to do so, for his disobedience, he experienced a downward spiral away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, his disobedience was spiritually dangerous. In the, in the opening verses of this, prof, of this book, uh, the word down is repeated, around, I think, around three times. Jonah went down, 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 away from the presence of the Lord, at least from his perspective. And, and we face that same danger today if we are disobedient to the calling that God has given to us to, uh, to live out the anointing that we share and confess his name. Um, we'll face a great danger. Jesus was strong on this point. People who refuse to acknowledge him before others have no right to call themselves Christians. And so we must be obedient to the call to bring the gospel to those around us, to speak a good word about Jesus Christ. It won't be a sermon. It may be be part of a sermon that you've heard the, uh, the, the Sunday before from your pastor. But it will be in your own language, your own, with your own uh, way of communicating it. But the point is, as we see Jonah's disobedience, we should say, not me. Not me. We must obey God's call to be missionaries. A third and final encouragement from the book of Jonah, how the book can make us better missionaries, is if it teaches us to trust God's sovereignty in missions, in salvation. Trust God's sovereignty. And Jonah knew that God was sovereign in salvation. He was, I hate to say it, but he was a sort of Calvinist in the sense that he knew that salvation did not depend on man. It depended upon the Lord. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's a Calvinistic confession. Right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord does it. Uh, the Lord doesn't reward righteousness. The Lord grants righteousness to those who are unrighteous but needy and know themselves needy. So the point is, Jonah recognized God's sovereignty in salvation. He just wasn't encouraged by it. In fact, he was discouraged by it. He's, he's, when, when he talks about God being... Uh, he, he said, I knew you were going to save people. I knew in your sovereignty you would, you would bring people out of their pit. He's complaining. He's complaining. We should draw encouragement from God's sovereignty in salvation. You may remember in the book of Acts, chapter 18, when the Apostle Paul was ministering in Corinth and evidently experiencing some frustration, some discouragement, perhaps on the verge of quitting, The Lord Jesus came to him in a vision and he says, Paul, do not be afraid. Do not quit preaching. Go on preaching. And then he gives a couple reasons. And one of the reasons that he gives the Apostle Paul an encouragement to keep at it is this from chapter 18, verse 10 of Acts. I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. The Lord Jesus is speaking to Paul a reminder of what we would call God's sovereignty in salvation, his electing grace. What he's saying is, Paul, there are many in this city, 
though it doesn't look like it, because Corinth is a terribly wicked city. To Corinthianize in the days of Paul was to commit sexual immorality, that the name of the city became a verb for sexual immorality. So many wicked people in the city. And Paul's evidently frustrated. But, but Jesus says, I have people in this city who are mine. It doesn't look like it. But they belong to me. And they have belonged to me since before the foundation of this world. They're mine. And I will bring them in to the fold. You keep preaching. You keep bring the word of God. They were divinely chosen for salvation as Acts 13 verse 48 puts it. We must trust God's sovereignty. How can God's sovereignty in salvation actually energize missions? You've heard as, as uh, Calvinistic people before from those who would disagree. Well, if you're Calvinist, you might as well just sit back and do nothing because God is sovereign. Why do anything? Of course, the opposite is true. But how is it true? One encouragement, first of all, Uh, To press on because of God's sovereignty and salvation is because election and election alone guarantees results. What was it that brought these Ninevites, thousands upon thousands evidently, what brought them to faith? Was it the love of the missionary overflowing toward them? Was it his beautiful, stirring, inviting message? No, his message, at least what's recorded, is 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Was it their their preparedness? Was it their inherent godliness? Was it the fact that they'd been reading up on the... I mean, none of these things are true. This revival makes no sense apart from the sovereignty of God and salvation. God could have said to Jonah, I have many in this city who are mine, who belong to me. Now go and preach and they'll get saved. And that should be an encouragement to us as well. J.I. Packer said this on this theme, God's sovereignty in salvation gave Paul hope of success as he preached to deaf ears and held up Christ before blind eyes and and sought to move stony hearts. That's, your, that, that's what we're doing. We're holding up Christ to people who can't see him, who don't love him, who, who, who think that the message of the cross is foolishness or a stumbling block. Why should we have any confidence that preaching or speaking the word is going to do anything? Because God has chosen a remnant for salvation and he will bring them to faith. Be encouraged and keep speaking God's word. Second, election actually calls us to action. Far from teaching us to just relax and see what God will do, election, um, God teaches us in the doctrine of election that he uses means toward bringing to faith those whom he has chosen. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. How were people saved? God saved them. What was the means of their salvation that a sovereign God used? The preaching of the word. 
The sovereign God can save through your spoken word as well. We should be encouraged to press on because of election. Third, election keeps missionaries humble. Keeps missionaries humble. Jonah obviously didn't work that revival in Nineveh. Paul, uh, Paul was simply a chosen vessel. You know, God could have chosen someone different than Paul. Paul could have ended up being a nobody. In fact, in his own eyes, he was a nobody. Uh, Paul says, as there was divisions in Corinth, eventually over the preaching of Apollos, the preaching of Paul, Paul says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? And the answer is, servants of God. Servants of God. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. It wasn't me. It will never be your pastor. It will never be you who gives the increase. It's God. And that should keep us humble so that we don't become inflated over our puny role in evangelism. So, so be encouraged by this, brothers and, and sisters. And note how, as we wrap up now, how Jonah ends abruptly. It's a little bit like the book of Acts ending abruptly, isn't it? You get to the end of chapter 28 and you, wanna, you, hope, you, you hope you could turn the page and there's more, right? Um, well, there is more, but the more is us. And that's why, of course, there are, you know, people have said uh, the church today is the 29th chapter of Acts and the 30th chapter of Acts and the 31st chapter and so on. So the, the abrupt ending of the book of Acts calls us to look at our own role. And that's what the abrupt ending in the book of Jonah can do for us as well. There's a question asked here. It's a very strange way to punctuate the conclusion of a writing. And you think, well, what's the answer? Well, that's for us to answer. Uh, yes, of course, the answer is obvious. God, sh- God was right to pity Nineveh. Um, but, but we are invited by this question to share God's pity. We are left to answer God's closing question about the beauty of mercy. Is mercy beautiful to you? Will you answer like Jonah? Or will we see the world as God sees it? A world greatly in need of mercy. A world filled with people who don't know their left hand from the right hand spiritually. But a world that is owned by the God of mercy. Who has called sinners out of sin into his calling to be a light to the nations. Let's answer like that. And let's pray together. Faithful God, we thank you so much for the Bible, all 66 books of it, and for this book, which contributes in such a special way to this canon of Scripture. We thank you for how it convicts the church, how it points to Jesus as the great missionary, and how it invites us, empowered by Jesus, assured that everyone who pleads the name of Christ is rescued from sin and punishment and is drawn into the great mission of God. And so help us to be encouraged, to be better missionaries through the teaching 
of this book. Be patient with us in our failures and shortcomings. And shine your grace through us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.